as we go to the word. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this day, that after all this time, it's our first day indoors, and I pray that you'd bless it. We want to worship you, we want to hear from you, and I pray that your spirit would be at work as we listen to your word this morning. I pray that you would help me to be faithful and accurate to every part of it. And I ask for your blessing on each one here this morning, that we would be drawn closer to you. Lord, we want to leave full of praise and full of thankfulness, being blessed by you. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name, who died so that we could know you. Amen. This morning, uh, before I go to the text that I'm going to preach from, I want to read you a passage from John chapter 17, uh, which is a small change from your printed bulletin. Uh, It's always a little bit of a challenge to pick a scripture reading that really complements the passage that I'm going to preach from. And one of my goals is to always try to choose the opposite testament. So if I'm preaching from the Old Testament, I want to find something from the New Testament that will say something similar and just demonstrate the unity of God's word, that what God has said in the Old Testament, he fulfills in the New Testament, and what God does in the New Testament, he laid a foundation for in the Old Testament, and we can see how God's plan hangs together. So this morning, as we look at a passage about God's people being faithful to his word in Ezra, I want to talk a little bit about how Jesus describes that we are united to the Father in John chapter 17. So in John chapter 17, starting in verse 14, Jesus is in the middle of a prayer to the Father, and he talks about how he has blessed those who follow him. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus this morning, this could be prayed of you. In fact, Jesus was praying for you when he prayed this. He says in John 17, verse 14, speaking to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them or set them apart. Make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, and they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me before, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is essentially praying that everyone who follows him would be united to God. 
And not just united to God, but united to each other. So that if I call myself a follower of Christ and you call yourself a follower of Christ, we have a kind of unity that people who don't follow Jesus can never experience. Jesus says the reason that we have that unity is he unites his followers to God the Father. But he does so in truth. In the beginning of this passage, Jesus says that he has given us God's word, and it's the word of God and the truth of God that helps maintain our unity. One of the things that he says so clearly is that he wants Christians to be united. And you can look around the world today and see a lot of divisions between people who call themselves Christians. You can see a lot of denominations that are struggling in a lot of different ways. And you can see a lot of churches that are struggling in a lot of different ways. And many would point to this prayer and say Jesus' highest priority is unity. And some have claimed that because Jesus loves unity so much, we should not pay attention to things that might divide us, to doctrinal disputes, to things that some people say matter and other people say don't matter as much. The main thing is unity. But what I'd like to remind you of as we've read today is that Jesus prays that we would be sanctified or set apart or made holy by truth. And then he says, your word is truth. So any attempt at unity that minimizes the word of God or that chooses to ignore things that God has said is not the kind of unity that Jesus prays for. And we're going to see in our passage in Ezra, and if you use a phone or if you have a paper Bible or however you'd like to turn there, I'd encourage you to turn to Ezra chapter 4. We're going to see a huge challenge to the people of God who were trying to obediently follow the word of God as their unity is tested. And so I want to encourage you to find the book of Ezra. It's in the Old Testament. I'd give you a page number, but it would almost certainly not help you at all. So Ezra chapter 4, and we're going to look at the whole chapter briefly this morning. Before we read anything there, though, uh, I was doing a little bit of historical digging in our own church this past week. Uh, Jackie Woodward gave me an envelope with a lot of different photo directories, some of them from uh, 40, 50 years ago, and uh, also a little booklet from the 150th anniversary of our church. And in 1989, we celebrated being a church for 150 years, uh, and now we're a little bit older, The church at that time asked members to submit different memories, and we've got, man, probably 40 or 50 different people wrote down, some of them a half page, some of them two or three pages of different things that they recalled. And I want to read you what a man named Aiden Highfield said. Uh, Unfortunately, I never had the privilege of knowing Aiden. He was a pillar of the church for a long time, but he passed away before I became the pastor here. And this is what he said. He said, I know, speaking in 1989, it's normal for churches to have their ups and downs. Our church is no exception. But when tough times come, everyone gathers around and everything is put to right. Times have changed and will change again, but there will always be a First Baptist of Holly because of people who have dedicated their lives to the service of God. I mentioned that quote from Aiden. Because I'm preaching through the book of Ezra, 
And it's a book where you see people who have dedicated their lives to the service of God, just like Aiden described, and things are being put right in their community. They have committed themselves to obeying the word of God as it was written, even though Moses, the man who wrote down the word of God, lived a thousand years before them. They have committed themselves to following it faithfully, even though the younger generation in Ezra's day grew up in a different culture that had different values. Rather than following the teachings that they would have learned in Babylon, and the more you know about Babylonian culture, the more you can see how it clashed with everything that God had said. Rather than following Babylonian culture, they said, we will believe the word of God and we will put it into practice. You might ask, why did that generation grow up in Babylon? And the answer was that their fathers and grandfathers had not been faithful to obey the Lord. And so the Lord, being faithful to everything he had said in his word, punished the people of Israel and caused the king of Babylon to come and carry them off into exile. And they had lived there for 70 years. And as they had experienced the discipline of God, some of the people repented. And some of the people longed to see God rebuild his people. And so in answer to those prayers, in faith to the promises of God, God blessed some of them and they returned to the land and they began to build the altar where they could offer sacrifices and faithful worship. And they began to lay the foundations of the temple. And we saw last week how there was this strange mixture of excitement and sorrow because the people were thrilled that God was doing something among them. And yet some of the older men who remembered what the temple looked like before King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it and burned it wept openly because the temple that they were building was nothing compared to the glory of the first temple. And so there are things in the past that they grieved and mourned even while the community was trying to be faithful to God, to be blessed by God. And today we're going to see that that tension begins to cause real problems as their unity is tested. Groucho Marx once said, These are my principles. If you don't like them, I have others. The test of your principles comes when someone else comes and opposes them openly. You can be like Groucho Marx and just say, well, I'm not going to major on that. That doesn't really matter anymore. Or you can do what the people of God did here and try to be faithful. And I want to say to each of you this morning, the greatest test to your faithfulness, if you are someone who wants to know the Lord and someone who wants to follow the word of God, the greatest test to your faithfulness will not come to you with devil horns and a pitchfork. It's not going to be an obvious invitation to do evil. The greatest threat to your faithfulness will come with a smile and an outstretched hand. These people had returned from Babylon. They had taken a 900-mile walk. They had faced real opposition along the way, and they are experiencing the blessings of God. And now they experience a temptation from a group of people who present themselves not as enemies, but as friends. And in fact, it's a very old temptation, and I want to invite you to read the first three verses of Ezra chapter 4 with me. 
It says, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, the King Cyrus, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Their reply to an invitation to collaboration is so abrupt, some have accused God's people of being in the wrong here that it wouldn't have been a big deal if they had accepted help from the people who lived in the land. And in fact, some go so far as to say they're actually being racist because they will not let those who came from other countries collaborate with them. If you pay attention to the text, though, this is clearly not an issue of racism. God's people has always been open. You can look through the Old Testament and see women like Rahab welcomed into the people of God. You can see women like Ruth, who was a Moabitess, welcomed into the people of God. You can see some of David's mighty men were not native-born Israelites. And yet, as anyone responds to God's promises in faith, they are welcomed and included in the people of God. The issue is not race. The issue is... These people, although they claim to follow God, do not follow God. And here's how you know that they are not following God. God clearly lays out how to offer sacrifices in the Old Testament, and he says, you must not offer sacrifices at any of your altars all over the country, but instead you must bring them to Jerusalem, where the temple is, where the altar is, where the priesthood is, And any sacrifice offered to God, even if you say, I'm offering this to Yahweh, if you offer it on your own, without the priest, without the temple, you are committing grave sin. Because God clearly told them how to approach him. And if you claim to follow God, but you do not follow his word as he tells you how to follow God, you are not a faithful follower. And as these returned exiles came back, they understood that if they didn't follow the word of God, they would never experience the blessings of God. I've got a couple of passages that I want to point to that help us understand this a little bit. And they are experiencing a very old temptation. If you know a little bit about the Bible, you know how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, how he promised that they could live in the land of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 34, God clearly says to them as he makes a sacred promise with his people. This is Exodus 34, 11. He says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. And this is the key verse, verse 13. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. But the people who lived in the land in Ezra's day 
did not listen to that kind of clear command. Instead, they followed their own gods from their own countries, and in addition to following their own gods, they added the worship of Yahweh while they lived in what they thought of as Yahweh's land. They did not treat God as the God of the entire world. They treated God as a small local deity who could be pacified by certain sacrifices. They weren't genuinely following the Lord. They were following part of what they thought they could do to obey God, to enjoy some peace. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, if you look at the book of 2 Kings chapter 17, you can actually see when they first were brought into the land of Israel. And there's a little bit of a longer passage there. If you want to study the whole chapter, it might be helpful. I'm just going to read a few verses that describe the people who are talking to the people in Ezra's day. Second Kings 17 says, So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So, it says two things that actually seem to directly contradict. It says they feared the Lord, and then it says, but they did not fear the Lord. Well, what it means when it says they did fear the Lord is they did actually offer sacrifices to him. They said, who's the God that rules this place? How do we have a happy life here? And they hired a priest that said, oh, Yahweh is our God. And that priest helped them make different sacrifices all over the country. And yet, when it says they did not fear the Lord, what that means is although they were afraid of God, they did not follow his commands. So if you genuinely fear the Lord in a biblical way, if you understand God's goodness and you are afraid of missing out on his goodness, you will follow his commands. You will find joy in them. You will find delight in them. You will find fulfillment in them. But if you are only afraid of God and try to do the minimum you can to have a peaceful, quiet life, and you don't ever discover the joy of obeying him, you are not a genuine follower of God. A genuine follower of God longs to be close to him, longs to know what he has said. And when his word says something, you listen to it, you obey it, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how challenging it is. And importantly, in our text today, these people who come with a sort of offer for help and a sort of offer for peace are not interested in truly following the Lord. And so God's people because they understand what happened in ancient times when their grandfathers and great-grandfathers disobeyed the Lord and set up altars and sacrifices and worshipped other gods, they understood the pain of disobedience. And so when these people came with a false offer of peace, they rejected it in no uncertain terms. They are not being racist. They are not being unnecessarily divisive. They are being faithful to the word of God because they know the cost of disobedience and they don't want to pay it. You can see in two places in our text today that this is the case. Number one, because verse one calls these adversaries of Judah. They've come offering peace, but they don't mean it. And if you look at chapter five, you discover that God blesses his people and God does not bless disobedience. God has always hated racism and he would not bless them if they were wrong to do this. So what happens? Well, part of what I believe we need to take from this 
is the fact that we need to be faithful to the Lord and the Lord only. It it might not be popular to follow the word of God, and it might look divisive. But God's word is true. It is for our health and blessing. You can find a lot of people today who say that there's more than one way to God. That you don't need to believe in Jesus, that God understands if you've never heard of Jesus, that that he'll kind of give you a free pass. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in Acts 4.12, the scripture says, There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. These things are not popular, but they are right. And you might ask, well, what's the big deal? I I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to argue. Well, the big deal is, apart from Jesus, people will die and go to hell for all of eternity. If you love them, you must give them the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. You must tell them that God forgives sins because Jesus has paid for it. And if you're afraid of offending someone, you ought to be more afraid of their eternity apart from God. I saw a great documentary, I mentioned it last week, where they're interviewing an atheist and they're not trying to be rude or combative. And the atheist is telling a bunch of Christians, you've got to be a monster to not tell people what you believe. Because if you truly believe that apart from Jesus, there's no hope and there's no salvation, how cruel is it if you don't spread that message? And friends, I want to say to you that the Bible is exclusive. If we don't passionately follow Jesus, and if we're not willing to say hard things and do hard things, the people around us will suffer. And if we love them, we will hold fast to the truth. In the long run, the people in Ezra's day were blessed for what they did. And as I already mentioned, you can see that if you glance at chapter 5, but we're not in chapter 5 this morning. What they do actually immediately causes a painful division. And when you are faithfully following the word of God, Jesus is very honest. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But then he comforts us and says, do not fear, I have overcome the world. You may have a great deal of trouble as you try to follow the Lord. Do it anyway. Be faithful. You will be blessed. But your blessing does not mean that you won't experience trials. So glance at at verses 4 to 23. You see after they have an old temptation and they actually do the right thing and obey the Lord, they experience a lengthy trial. And I'm going to read through verses 4 through 23, and you see the response of the people as the people of God have told the people who live in the land, no. Verse 4 says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, that's quite a span of time. This is not a brief struggle. This actually goes on for decades. And Ezra 
gives us a few examples of the ways that they made trouble for the people of God. So verse 6, it says, In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, a second time, it says, Bishlam and Mithraeth and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Now, how many of you love politics? No one. This is shocking. All right, thanks, Kevin. We got one. You're kind of strange. They are about to get very political. What they do when the people of God say, no, I'm sorry, we are going to build the temple of God the way God instructed us to, and you are not willing to follow his instructions, so no, you will have no part in what we're doing. What they do is they try to go over the heads of the local leaders and appeal to the king to stop what God's people are trying to do. And they have some success. So look with me at how they do this. They write this letter, and they write the letter to the king, Artaxerxes, as follows, verse 9. Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. So what they're doing is they're saying, everyone agrees with us. All of the people who live here think this way, and they're writing to the king who lives 900 miles away, and they said, this is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and in provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in from it of old. That is why this city was laid waste. We made known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river." If that's not politics, I don't know what is. They are saying, king, these Jews are rebellious. Are the Jews rebellious? No. They're claiming the promises of God and wanting to worship God. If you paid attention, their letter talked about rebuilding the walls of the city. One of the interesting things about this book is Ezra writes it in such a way that you understand the opposition to God's people lasted for decades. He's telling an old story to people who are trying to rebuild the city. And he wants them to know this struggle happened before some of you were born. And God was faithful in old times. He will be faithful now. Like I said at the beginning of this message, uh, Aiden Highfield is not somebody I ever met. But he trusted that God was faithful in every generation 
and trusted that his people dedicated themselves to the Lord, that God would continue to prove himself faithful. And that's what Ezra's doing. He's saying it wasn't a one-time deal where we had temporary opposition and then it was all roses and sunshine. It was a decades-long opposition. In fact, the scripture says that through many hardships, Christians will enter the kingdom of God. Hardship is nothing new for the people of God. The hymn writer that wrote Amazing Grace said, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. And until we see Jesus face to face, we will continue to wrestle with opposition. And it doesn't matter if these people are telling the truth. All that matters is that we be faithful to the promises of God and following his word. The decades of opposition that the people of God here experienced are a warning for us that faithfulness is sometimes hard. Ezra wants you to know that faithfulness is not easy. He wants you to know that following God is a lifelong affair. He wants you to know that you might start well and you might think that God is moving and things might look great. Think of the celebration they had as they laid the foundation for the temple and the joy that they had. And then immediately afterwards, things got ugly. And the people of God would have wondered Why is God allowing this to happen? But most importantly, Ezra included this account that took decades to complete because he wanted the people who were reading his book to know that God had been faithful all along the way. If you look at verse 24, excuse me, I I had stopped halfway through. The king actually replies, he listens to all of the lies And he grants the request to stop the work. Let me read the king's reply here. So the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I make a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men must be made to cease and that this city must not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? So the evil request is granted. The opponents of God's people have won, at least for now. But notice the very last verse. And my last point today is God's timing. God sometimes works slowly, but he never stops and he never retreats. So look at God's timing in verse 24, the final verse of the chapter. It says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now what's happening here? is Ezra has included a story from his own day that happens about 30 years later. They're still in the middle of conflict. They're still fighting over the wall. But he's bookended it with this little mention of where chapter 3 ended. So they're trying to lay the foundation of the temple. They want to build the temple because being right with God was the only way they felt they would have peace and security as the people of God. And so they've gone back to the present day. It's a little bit of a flash forward. Back in the present day, the work of the temple stopped. And he mentions it stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
So the opponents of God were so successful that after the foundation was laid, nothing happened. Not only that, nothing happened for 16 years. 16 years. Think about what that means in your lifespan for this time. That's half a generation of delay. That's enough time for a little kid to grow up and get a driver's license. That's enough time to go K through 12 plus a bachelor's degree. Imagine if you lived in this day, you start this building project. You're dreaming that you're going to get to worship with your small children while they still live with you at home. And then the work stops and they grow up and they leave and you still haven't worshiped together at the temple that you started to build. Imagine even more tragically that your aged father made a 900 mile trip from Babylon all the way back to Jerusalem, helped you lay the foundation. He's one of the people who's weeping because he remembers Solomon's temple and he's excited that God is doing something. He's excited that he's gonna be able to worship with you when the temple is completed. And then the people of God face opposition and the work stops and he dies before the temple is built. And the people of God must have felt that God was working too slowly and perhaps they felt that God wasn't working at all. First Baptist Church of Holly, this matters for us because the church faces opposition today both from within and from without. And if we are impatient and feel like God is no longer working, there's a chance that we may give up. But God's work does not stop. God will build his church. And I want to say to you today, do not be impatient or discouraged when things are hard, but instead trust that God's work will always move forward and that when we faithfully commit to following the Lord, when we faithfully commit to following his word, he will bless the most encouraging word in this passage is the word until. And at just the right time, God blesses his people. And I can't wait to tell you how in chapter 5. But for today, here's what I want to leave you with. Jesus, some 500 years later, encounters a Samaritan woman. Now why does that matter? Because the people that were facing opposition were also encountering Samaritans. Samaritans are the people that were moved into Jerusalem when the people of God were forced out of it. They are the people that love to worship different idols plus God. And 500 years later, Jesus encounters a woman of Samaria at a well. And this woman, she's got some baggage. And she starts to have this religious conversation with Jesus, but what she's really doing is she's kind of building a wall. She's throwing out these questions that she can say, you know, I can dismiss you if you answer this question wrong, and then we'll just go our separate ways and it'll be fine. And the amazing thing about Jesus is he knows how to go directly to your heart. And as she started to talk to Jesus, she said, I perceive that you're a prophet. She began to understand that he there was something special about him. He knew God somehow, and she didn't totally understand what it was. And as she talked to him, Jesus, in the most loving and gracious way, opened her heart and confronted her sin. He didn't say, you're fine to worship wherever you want. He didn't say, there are many ways to God. 
he invited her to share in living water that would forgive her of her sins and make her right with God. You see the heart of God in the person of Jesus as he opens an invitation to anyone and everyone to come experience life through him. And that woman, as she had an encounter with Jesus, went away amazed, believing in him and finding peace with God. And friends, there is only one way to have peace with God, and it's through Jesus Christ. He shows us. It doesn't matter what your background is. Anyone can come to Christ and experience living water. Anyone can have this kind of forgiveness. And so your temptation today might be, you know, I don't know if I care about Jesus. I don't know if I believe in him. And maybe you are tempted to think that it doesn't matter. Our text says it matters a lot. Jesus is the only way to God, and my challenge for you is to believe that he died for you and rose from the dead and to rest in that. Perhaps you would say you're already a follower of Christ, but you are tempted to ignore part of the word of God because it's unpopular and it might cause division. And to be honest, following the word of God faithfully does cause a type of division. Your obedience might be costly, and it might take a long time to see the joyful reward for faithfulness, but it will be worth it. Be faithful to the word of God as it is written, and you will be blessed. Would you pray with me? Father, we know your heart to save. And Lord, we praise you for the love that we see displayed in Christ, for the open invitation that anyone who trusts in him will be saved. Lord, I pray that you would draw people to yourself, just like people were drawn to Jesus. I pray that you'd draw them today. They would find peace and forgiveness through his precious blood. They would find life through the resurrection that he has promised to us. And Lord, I pray for those who are following that you would give them strength to endure whatever trials you send our way in your goodness. I pray that they would be encouraged by the faithfulness of people who have gone before us. And I pray that you would build your church here. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we sing together, you keep playing. Uh, I just want to say, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, would you talk to me today before you leave? This is an opportunity to draw close to him. If you've never been baptized and you would like to be baptized, I'd love to help you understand what that means. I'd love to baptize you next week. I don't know if we're inside or outside or what that'll be like, but committing to be a follower of Jesus, the most important thing you could ever do. And if you call yourself a Christian today and you're already a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to commit to following all of the word of God as it's written. You'll be blessed as you do. Let's sing together as we worship the Lord. As I prepare to dismiss you today, I want to leave you with a couple of verses from Ephesians. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, in our church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.